Are you looking for a new podcast by a black, brown, or QT pot creator? Are you finding it impossible to find your people? It's all good. We got you with The Cube, the one and only curated app of music and podcasts by black, brown, and QT pot creatives. Get into it. Visit thecube.app. That's T H E Q U B E.app and sign up for our newsletter so you'll be the first one to know when the app drops. The Cube, your new favorite podcasting app for BIPOC and QTPOC content. There's no place like The Cube. Family, welcome to episode two of Black HIV in the South, How Did We Get Here? I'm Anna Deshaun, your favorite queer radio personality, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dwayne Kramer. He's also my friend. What's going on, Dwayne? Hey, I'm doing good, Anna. How you doing? I'm doing good. Good, I'm good. doing good. And this conversation we're going to have in this episode is going to just build on what we already started. The first thing that comes to mind is about the fear. And we touched on it a little bit in episode one, but I really want to dig in because I wasn't there, right? (laughs) I wasn't there during that time. I've just heard the stories, but I really want to set the stage and set the context for what that fear Uh actually did to our community that aided in how we got here. How did we get here? I mean, so much of it started with the fear, right? There was fear of losing your job, fear of what your family was going to say, fear of what the church was going to say, what your community, what your parents thought. So, Dwayne, tell us, like, what was that fear like for you? Well, you know, I'll tell you, and I, I thought about the conversation we had earlier, and when I found out that I was HIV positive, I did have a support system. I lived in a community where there was a lot of access to medications and all those other things, so I was privileged, um, and I knew it was a different time. You know, in the early 80s, people were dropping like flies, I became positive in 1996, antiretrovirals were out, people were living, and borrow loads were able to come down. So it was a, a different time. But I'll tell you, I think I was a bit delusional thinking everything was going to be okay. Because I didn't freak out, like I said, when, when I found out my status, because I had my support system and I had good insurance and I was in a community. But thinking back now, I was pretty scared about a lot of different things. And these things came up over time. You know, very quickly I realized that, oh my gosh, if I'm going to have sex with other people, I need to tell them I'm HIV positive. Because I used to easily say, hey, I'm negative. You know, no problem. You know, I'm good. But now I was faced with having to disclose my status. And that wasn't always an easy thing to do. But I knew it was the right thing to do. Uh, so I, I did, did my best. And I always didn't disclose for various reasons, depending on what type of activity I was doing with somebody, because I was very educated about ways of transmission. But I realized that, you know, I was losing my ability to feel, quote unquote, clean. You know, you are online and people are, you know, hitting you up and they're saying, are you clean? And I'm thinking, I'm clean. I took a shower today, but, but. I'm HIV positive. And so immediately you'd be blocked or all these things. So then you start getting this rejection and fear of rejection, fear of, of disclosing. And that was really hard. Uh, it was very, very hard. You know, there were 
people that I thought were my good friends that I lost. So I found out who my good friends were. There were people that I dated and the course of the dating, you know, before having sex, you know, I would say, I make sure you're positive. I might not ever see those people again. Uh, people that I thought were my chosen family seemed to walk away or treat me differently, not hug me as much, not kiss me as much, even though these are supposed to be educated people. These are people living in San Francisco. They should know better. But again, I was, I was fearful. And also, I should have known better. I was in my 30s when I converted, became HIV positive. Uh, I should have known better, so I beat myself up. Uh, so there, there was a lot really going on, just with the stigma, you know, when to disclose, how to disclose, making new friends, finding new support groups and, and places where I could share my personal experience. So there, there was a lot going on, a lot more than I really realized at the time. Clean versus dirty. I'd never heard that before because those are not conversations I've ever had. But the stigma around being HIV positive during those early days of the 80s and the 90s was probably a hundredfold of the stigma that exists today. Oh, well, well, absolutely it was a hundredfold for a number of reasons. I'll tell you, uh, back in those days, the initial medications, AZT, et cetera, they might have prolonged life for a very short period of time, but they were really killing people. Those drugs back in those days also had a lot of really horrible side effects and also distorted people's bodies and the way they looked, where they, whether they had facial wasting, whether they had lipodystrophy, which is a condition where you almost get like this very large belly, like this kind of weird, strange, big fat deposit. So when you would walk around and see certain people, you would go, oh, they look like they have it, that they have, you know, it. And um, so it was more noticeable because of a lot of the medications or the, the, um, you know, the effects that they had on, on, on the body. I'm really glad that you brought that piece up around how people looked because in the early days, I can only imagine the type of fear that that, left people with as you saw your friends go from these very healthy human beings to being very sick and not being able to do for themselves and knowing that there wasn't anything anybody could do about it and that was just going to be their fate. So I had the pleasure of talking with Nathan Townsend who is the HIV Prevention Programs Manager for NASM and family. You may remember him from episode one. What I found really impactful about talking with Nathan was just how his story went from literally hopelessness to hope. And I really want to share this next clip because he really sheds light on how these medications affected people's everyday lives. Like there was an impact that goes way beyond what we think of on the surface. So let's take a listen to what Nathan had to say. I was just on that cusp. I was on that cusp when he started having cocktails, when he started having, you know, multiple, you know, regimen therapy. And even then, the side effects were just so horrific. Um, one medication you had, it was a wafer, and you had to crush it up and put it in orange juice. I was working at the postal service. Where am, where am I going to do this at? I was going to the bathroom stall and crush medicine up like it was cocaine. 
you know, so and, and so if you're an addict and you're doing stuff like this, you know, it's triggering. Then there was another medicine called contaminant, which was an inhalant that you would inhale these vapors to uh, to make your immune system so that you would get the uh, uh, pneumonia. And so I would go there just it was like sucking on a um, a, 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 a crack pipe, you know. And so if I'm looking again, it, it was supposed this person was an addict. So there were so many things that you had to navigate and go through. I was taking 14 pills a day. That's 98 pills a week. And it, you know, just to survive, and still with no hope, no, you know, that uh, Barack Obama's book, uh, The Audacity of Hope. I didn't have the audacity of hope because people told us you're going to be gone. I sold my life insurance. I had three hundred thousand dollars worth of life insurance. I sold it for one hundred eighty-six thousand dollars. People said, "Did you buy um, property? Why would I invest in property?" I blew it. I bought coats, cars, gave the money, money away, bought jewelry, did all the things of thinking that I'm just gonna live my best life for that moment, and that I didn't die. You know, so it, it comes down to realizing that we're built for endurance. We're built to be resilient. That's the that's what we are made out of. And the challenge that come before you is that God won't put more on you than you can bear. You don't know what you can bear until you go through the form, through the fire. You don't know how much you can, how much you can be tested until you go through the storm. But what you realize is that after you get through the storm, it is better on the other side. But what we don't realize in the midst of the storm, somebody is with you in the midst of the storm. He's shaping you, he's making you, he's molding you. I'm a much better person than I was there. It took the broken me. I'm say this one more time. It took the broken me to become the better me. I really do have to just take a step back and sort of just breathe through the moment. Because I wasn't there in the 80s, right, in early 90s, I don't have my own personal story for that time. But hearing Nathan talk, just about how triggering crushing up medication in a bathroom while you won't break at work. If you were a former drug user or former drug addict, that goes way past triggering. That is living the act. That is acting it out. I can also imagine that it felt very helpless. And when I think about people across the country and the fact that the media was only telling the stories of white gay men, how that impact resonated with folks in the South even more when we know the rates of poverty, when we know the lack of access to resources, and when we know all the other things that are systematically happening to Black people in the South, that had to feel, the only word that comes to mind is isolating. Uh, you know what? <laughs> he He's right on. Um, you know, God does not give us anything that we can't handle. We are resilient people. We as Black people, we can, we have gotten through the Middle Passage and everything else, so we can, we can beat this. You know, he talked about a lot of therapies and all those pills and wafers, and it made me realize that a lot of people, you know, just slightly older than I am, had to go through all of those things. I didn't experience that, 
But I recall now a sister that told me that she had a medication that had to be refrigerated. So she had to hide her medicine and from her family. And that wasn't easy to do with one refrigerator in the house. And when she traveled, that was a problem as well. So there were a lot of complications just related to the number of pills. And like he talked about the inhalant, crushing up tablets and taking 15 tablets a day. I knew someone that was taking 30 tablets a day. Because again, it's not just HIV that you're preventing as part of the pill regimen. You're pre pre preventing pneumonia and all these other complications. I knew somebody that was taking over 30 pills a day. And you know what? He got cancer of like the esophagus because he was taking 30 pills a day. Many eventually died of HIV-related complication. This is the story for so many black and brown folks is, is not one where you can just take one pill a day and everything's okay. The fact that Nathan was taking 98 pills a week. Family, I can barely take the five vitamins I'm trying to take just to keep my immune system up every day. <laughs> like COVID got us out here on vitamin C, on D3, on info, I, to take 98 pills a week. We really have to think about how we got here. And some of the positive ways we got here is through advocacy and through science. Science has taken us from 98 pills a week, family, to maybe you taking a shot once every couple months. Maybe you take a pill, one pill every day, and that can lead you to being untransmittable, undetectable, you can't even pass HIV anymore, right? There, there is a story here of how we do go from hopelessness to hope, but also how much work had to be done and how much people had to go through in order for us to get where we are today. And I think that that's really the story we have to tell here is that We've come a really, really long way. And it is upon us to tell the story so that we can get to zero new infections. And the, and, the, and the region that needs our voice the most right now is the South. And we cannot, we cannot dismiss the fact that there is still a very real epidemic of HIV in the South today. So I had the divine experience of attending the Saving Ourselves Symposium. It's called SOS. That's what everyone affectionately calls it. And it's an annual conference designed to educate and empower the Black LGBTQ plus community, specifically in the South. And the reason I call it a divine experience is because I was in a room full of Black LGBTQ folks who are committed to getting to zero new infections, but who are also going through their own trials, tribulations, struggles, and trying to just come up with solutions to save their people because no one was coming to save us. And that's the story they told. No one was coming to save us. We had to save ourselves. And the work ain't pretty. It's not, it's not anything that ends up on the front page of any newspaper. It's the work that goes unnoticed. 
and they are saving people's lives every single day. And it was at SOS that I had the opportunity to hear Deidre speaks. What makes Deidre so incredibly special is that she is so transparent about how she is not allowing HIV to control her, but fearlessly taking control of HIV while being a mother, while being a sister to so many people, while literally helping to decriminalize HIV in the South. And let us be clear, I didn't even really know this was still a thing. And so <laughs> I had no idea the impact that HIV criminalization was having on people, and especially people in the South, where these laws are still very prevalent. Now, we already know that the South makes up 52% of new HIV cases in the country. But what we don't hear enough about is that HIV AIDS related illness is among the leading causes of death for black women, especially between the ages of 25 and 34. So it feels like poetic justice, which by the way, is one of my favorite movies. Okay. That a black woman is leading the charge to change legislation around how her community is allowed to survive with HIV. She is quite literally part of the change. And I think that that's amazing because we don't hear Black women called into this conversation enough. I feel really blessed that we have the opportunity to be in conversation with Deidre Speaks around the work that she's doing alongside some other brilliant Black folks in Virginia who were the first to decriminalize HIV in the South and they have laid the black print. We ain't no blueprint around here. They laid the black print for what and how that can be done across the South. Now y'all get an opportunity to hear from Deidre for yourself. Let's take a listen to what Deidre had to say. Um, so HIV criminalization is, um, and in its simplest form, is criminalizing a person because of their HIV status. And we have seen that show up in a bunch of different ways. If you're out doing sex work, for example, and you get caught in any way, shape or form, and then they find out your HIV status, you could be put on sex registries, for example, that happens in Tennessee. Um, we've actually seen where Tennessee representatives um, in the legal force have been sending out task force, specifically, to be honest, with our trans women um, looking for uh, individuals to be to share their HIV status, but I mean, twenty dollars. Folks are being put on the sex registry at the end of the day for negotiating sex with the undercover cop. Twenty bucks, and that sex registry is for the rest of their lives. And wherever, whatever state you go to next, you gotta go in and apply and make sure that you're on that registry. We have folks that have kids that have nephews and nieces and children in their lives and not being able to be around them. Um, if you are in, for example, a fight, if uh, you and I decide, I mean, I can't see where this will ever happen between me and you, but we get to go through it, double, double, double. And um, my HIV status comes about in some states, not only will I be charged for the assault, but I will also be charged because of my HIV status of putting you at risk for HIV, although maybe no blood was transmitted, there was nothing that would have created a space for HIV to even be transmitted. Um, folks have been charged with, in, especially if they're already justice involved, um, for spitting on an officer, 
spit does not transfer or transmit HIV. Um, and so folks are getting trumped on charges because of their HIV status or because of a disease. And these laws really came about, about back in the 80s when the Ryan White funds became available from uh, Congress. And the way that they wanted to make sure that states would get it was that they had to have a law on the books that if someone transmitted HIV to someone else, um, then they would, you know, be penalized for that or incarcerated. And so states came up with these really crazy laws um, in order to get funding, to be honest, just in order to get funding, not knowing that, you know, years later, now we're, we're 35 plus years into this movement, then now medications have advanced from AZT until a world class of a bunch of medications where folks can get to an undetectable status. And if you're undetectable, then you're unable to transmit HIV to another person. And that's without um, set, without condoms or a barrier of prophylactics during sex. And so they didn't even think about that part. And that's the part that we're really fighting against is they're assuming that HIV is still this, you know, I sneeze and you get it. That's not how HIV, you, there's a couple of things that you got to do and be present um, in order for HIV to be transmitted to another person. So um, it completely works against public health. And that's what we noticed, not just in Virginia, but across the country, is that folks didn't want to know their status because they knew if I know my status, then I could be charged. And that's why Virginia was like, no, you have to show proof that if you and I are in a relationship or anything and HIV happens to you, I'm HIV positive, you've got to prove that it came from me because it, HIV could have came from anywhere else and you want to pin it on me. So that proof has to be in the pudding. And so that is what HIV crim is. Um, the military looks at HIV criminalization totally different um, in a sense that folks are put out of the military in dishonorable charges um, and so are unable to get the VA benefits and other benefits um, are not even accepted into the military if you are a person living with HIV. When I heard Deidre share that with me, it's just really unbelievable that today, in 2023, HIV criminalization is still a thing. That I could get charged with who knows what. And if someone finds out that I'm HIV positive, then I could get trumped up charges because of that, because of a disease. But the basis of fear in 1980-something, right? And this need for funding, the fact that they would hold funding over someone's head, uh -huh. right, <laughs> in a state, in order to get this funding, you have to have this law to on the books. To get some names, get the names of those HIV positive <laughs> folks. And, oh, let's go undercover as cops and pay the transgender folks $20. If they tell us their status, then they got to go on the registry. I mean, this is, it's, 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 it's despicable, but believable. It's believable. And scary. The sex registry ain't nothing to play with. People have children. 
right? People have, um, you can't come into a certain, you can't come so close to a school. Like if your children is, if your child is graduating, if um, you want to go to the school play, the school musical, these are things you can't participate in if you've got a trumped up charge based upon an HIV status. And so what I think was amazing about what Deidre Speaks does and what her and, and the team that she was on did was that they were a part of the team that decriminalized HIV in Virginia, which made them the first state in the South to decriminalize HIV, which is a big deal. They have laid the foundation for how other states can also decriminalize HIV. So this isn't happening anymore in Virginia. But family, just so you know, according to <laughs> according to the census, there are 13 states in the South. So there's 12 more states that need this work done as well. But Dwayne, I mean, this is, for me, it is still very, a very mind-blowing moment that this is still the case in 2023. Yeah, well, you know what? You know, come on, shout out to Deidre, Deidre Speaks and, and her whole team, uh, team of folks because they're doing heroic work in the South and uh, she's changing the pattern. She's changing the pattern in one of the most important ways, and that's through legislation. Um, you know, there's some new things that she shared in there that I didn't think about, but they are in line with the continued strategies to keep black and brown men and women apart. Because think about it, for HIV positive, and now you know that if you date someone who's HIV negative or start that process, that you might go to jail at some point. So that might encourage you to only seek out HIV positive individuals, thereby limiting your world, your, your love connections. And again, that whole feeling and the pain that you have to go through with disclosure do I disclose or not? Do I not disclose my status, but only participate in intimate activities that I know are safe based on science? Or do I walk away from people that are interested in me because they're negative and I'm positive? Like, no, 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 you know, I don't want to, I, I, I just can't date you. And you don't even tell them your status because you know that you could go to jail or that you may be heartbroken. So there's multiple things that can happen to you if and when you disclose. But again, with all of the multitudes of pressures, and there's so much more than just HIV. HIV is not on the, the number one thing on the list for most people. It might be diabetes. It might be food insecurity, housing. Uh, who knows? So this is just one more thing that you have to deal with. If our men and women aren't disclosing their status and if they're not testing because they could go to jail if the test result comes back positive and they have sex with their husband or their wife or their girlfriend or their boyfriend, they can go to jail. They may know that they're HIV, likely HIV positive if their partner, husband, or someone else died of the virus and was an intravenous drug user, and they for sure are thinking, well, shoot, I may go through the same thing, but I certainly don't want to go to jail, so I'm not going to get tested. So this is part of, of the, the systems process to continue to keep the viral load high in our community so that the chances of black and brown people 
catching HIV is high because the viral load is high in the community. Have we addressed all of these isms and uh, addressed some of the lack of access to healthcare and education? And if we could implement sex education, high schools and junior high schools in the South, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in. So there has to be dramatic change and there has been progress, but we need to save ourselves. And we can do that very simply by educating ourselves, trusting the science and telling our story. Because I'll tell you, when we tell our story, you find out that there's other people just like you that can help you through the process and you find your tribe. And there's a tribe out there for everyone. I think that's a beautiful way to end this episode is reminding all of us that we do have a tribe, that there is a tribe for us. And I think that that is actually part of the journey. When people get diagnosed with HIV, they think it's over. They think that life as they know it is no more. So I think that's just so beautiful, Dwayne, the way that you said that, that everyone has their tribe. When we think about the fear of diagnosis, to the moment you find your tribe, there's a whole journey in between. And the work that Deidre is doing with her team is creating new opportunities for how people can take that journey. It's an unacknowledged consequence of HIV criminalization that I'm alone in this because I can't tell anyone. In episode three, we talk about building community, and how the community had to redefine it for themselves. This is Black HIV in the South. How did we get here? Black HIV in the South is an exclusive production of The Cube. The show is produced by Latrice Sampson Richards of STS Productions and edited by Experience J of Shh, Just Listen Media. Follow us on social at the Cube app and check out the Cube to discover the best BIPOC and QTPOC podcasts.